You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Well, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. If you want to get a last pastry or coffee, feel free to do that. As you return to your seats, if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. If you don't own a Bible or have one with you, we have some hardback black Bibles at the table just over there. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you're using one of those, you're on page 978. So 978, one of those hardback black Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We'd love to send you home with that so you have a copy of God's Word. We'd love for you to, to keep that. Uh, after a short pause in our Ephesians series, we're jumping back into it this week. And the title of our series is Foundations of Faith from Death to Life in the book of Ephesians. And when we started this series, we talked about how important foundations are when building a structure and how necessary they are for a good structure. And as we replant our church together, we want to build a strong foundation as we build a vibrant family of faith together. And up to this point throughout Ephesians, we've place the foundation stones of our identity primarily. That's what Paul's talking about at the beginning of Ephesians is our identity, that God loves us, that he chose us in Christ before the world began, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together through faith, and that he didn't make us alive just as individuals, but actually as a family, that we are not made new alone, but together we are being made into a holy temple of the Lord. And based on this shared identity that we have, then Paul is now beginning to give us instruction about how to live in the world. What does it mean for us in our everyday lives? And so today's passage, we're going to find out about how we live as faithful followers of Jesus in relationship to the world, in relationship to those around us, in relationship to the culture and the context that we live in. And so if you found Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, go ahead and stand As I read God's word, you can stand with me. It'll appear on the screen behind me, or you can follow along in your copy of God's word. God's word says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these, of these things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat as I pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. We're asking for your help right now. God, we want to know what it means to live in this world and how to. And even as I read through this text, I just was um, reminded of how maybe even shocking some of that language is to some of our modern ears. And so we need your help. Help us to know what this means for us, to be faithful followers of Jesus right now, here today. So would you help us by the power of your spirit, open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to use your imaginations with me right now and do your best to picture this in your minds as I lead us through this thought experiment. Imagine that all the buildings in the world were turned upside down and you started to walk in this upside down world. So now all ceilings have become floors. The lights that were in the ceiling are now at our feet. The doors that we walk through, what we used to walk under, is now something we have to walk over. And I realize that this analogy breaks down fairly quickly when you start to think about drop ceilings that aren't very solid. Would I fall through them? What about stairs? So just indulge me. Imagine all those questions got answered, okay? So we're walking in this upside down world for a few months, and then eventually it's a few years. And before you know it, 20 years have passed. An entire generation has been raised with this upside down world just being normal for them. 20 year, another 20 years go by, and eventually everyone has forgotten that we're living in an upside-down world, until one day someone comes and points out the fact that we're living upside-down. But people don't believe them. In fact, everyone would think that they are strange for saying that things are upside-down, because what used to be normal has now become odd. And when someone tries to live in a way, or in the way that the world was designed to function in this thought experiment, their thought as thought of as the oddity. And in many ways, this is the reality of the world we live in. God designed the world to function in a particular way, and for generations, people have deviated from God's design in all sorts of ways. And Jesus came to turn this world upside down, or actually right side up. And when you start to live like Jesus in an upside down world, then you'll be an oddity at times we will be distinct. And the language that Paul uses in our passage to talk about this is darkness and light. Once we were darkness, but in Christ, we are now light. And here's the message of the sermon for us today, that the fruit of light will look unnatural in a world of darkness. For the Ephesians, they're trying to figure out what this means to follow Jesus in a, as a, in a first century city, the city of Ephesus, that was filled with practices that are inconsistent with the life of Christ. They want to know, how do they live in this world well? How are they called to live? And we want to know this too, don't we? Doesn't this sound like our lives at times? So I have three ways that we are called to live as followers of Jesus in this world. The first, we are called to be holy in thought, word, and deed. Second, we're called to be distinct from the world. And third, we are called to be light in a world of darkness. So first, holy in thought, word, and deed. Here at River City Church, you're going to hear me talk about two things often, and I'll mention them in different ways at, at different times, but you'll hear me repeat them over and over. The first is that through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we are made holy for all time. This is our identity. 
And second, because you are holy in Jesus for all time, God wants to make you holy in your everyday life right now. The second is not a qualification for the first, but it is a necessary outcome of the first. And this is captured well in the book of Ephesians, or sorry, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected or sanctified, it's often translated. And I mention this because these two things are at play here in Ephesians. As Paul calls the church in Ephesus to be holy in thought, word, and deed, he does so because it is no longer fitting for them to ignore their sin. They're different now. They are made holy in Jesus. That's what he means in verse 4 when he says that these things are out of place for the saints. They just don't make sense anymore for them. It's like playing the game, which one doesn't belong. If you were to think about this, covetousness no longer fits with honesty and kindness and thanksgiving. These are the sort of things that Paul is saying. It doesn't fit anymore because that's not who you are anymore. And in verses three through four, then we get some examples of what is now out of place for those who follow Jesus. And in this short list, we get three basic categories. Deeds expressed in sexual immorality and impurity, thoughts expressed in covetousness or greed, sometimes translated, and words expressed in foolish talk and crude joking. And in these three categories, thought, word, and speech, or thought, word, and deed, Paul basically covers everything that we do in life. There is nothing we do that is not a thought, a, a speech act, or a deed. And Paul is calling us in, to holiness in our entire lives. And he gives some specific application for these in these three categories in the areas of sex, money, and speech. As Paul looked into the lives of the Ephesians and he determined which behaviors to confront, these are the three that he thought of. And in many ways, this could have been written to a replant in Minneapolis today, right? Same things are around us. So let's look at these three briefly. First, I think we should ask, why is sexual immorality the deed that Paul highlights? Why is that the deed he highlights in that kind of category of life? Well, in Ephesus at this time, sexual immorality led to all sorts of things. It led to idol worship. It destroyed marriages. It created unjust environments, and especially for women and children. Men in particular would violate the covenant of marriage. They would divorce their wives, and they would neglect their families. Temple prostitution was also common in Ephesus at this time because of the temple of Artemis and the fertility rituals that surrounded that place. This led to idol worship. It turned women into tools for pleasure for others. One of the reasons that Paul is talking to the early church and he takes the sexual ethics so seriously is because they saw the way that living outside of God's design has incredibly negative impacts on our worship, on our families, on our communities, which is why Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this passage, uses this phrase that it sets off a downhill slide when it comes to sexual immorality. God designed human sexuality to function in a particular way, and when we deviate from that design, even in small ways, it will begin to have an increasingly negative impact on us personally and on our communities. And that's still true today. A distorted sexual ethic ruins families, it breaks the covenant of marriage, it creates unjust work environments, and it enslaves thousands around the world. God designed sex to be self-sacrificing. It, it was meant to be something of giving of yourself, legally, 
personally, socially, in the context of a committed and permanent marriage. This is why we care so deeply about a biblical sexual ethic here at River City. Not because we want to heap shame on people, which so often surrounds this area of life, or that we don't understand the complexity and the depth and emotion that people feel around their sexual identity, but because living according to God's design brings flourishing. Deviating from his design leads to the breakdown physically, relationally, socially of our health together. If you are someone in this room whose sexuality has been a source of shame for you in the past, I just want you to hear me say, we're not trying to heap shame on you. Whether it's the source or whether it came from abuse from others, decisions that you've made, or just confusion about your own identity, I I want you to know that you can walk in the light here at River City Church. We do not want to increase this shame around you. We believe that God restores, God heals, He makes us whole and holy in Jesus, and no area of life is off limits to that. I know this can be sensitive for some people, and so I'd encourage you to talk to somebody who does feel safe. If you don't have someone in your life who feels safe to talk about this, find me afterward or find a trained counselor to talk with. This is an area that we can bring in the light, and God brings restoration. God desires healing, and it's possible. The second behavior that Paul mentions here is covetousness. Many have translated this word as greed. Paul makes this little notation in verse 5 about it being idolatry because it is ultimately about worship. This is a worship issue in which we want what others have, whether that's in storing money in large bank accounts or it's spending money on material goods. The covetousness is expressed in what we call greed and materialism. And Jesus said of this in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot worship both God and money. So we must all ask ourselves, what has captured my heart? Money and what it can get me or Jesus and his kingdom? The third category here is speech. Paul references foolish talk and crude joking. Now, exactly what Paul has in mind is not necessarily clear, but what is clear from the Bible is that words, the words we speak, bring life or death, and our speech is powerful, so often more powerful than we realize. I read a research study this past week that I found fascinating. It was conducted by John Barr in the 90s, and in this study, three different groups of people were put into three different rooms, and each of them had different lists they were, of words they were meant to unscramble and sort. One group had a list of rude words, another had a list of neutral words, and a third had a list of polite words. And after they were done with this task, they were supposed to walk down the hall and report to the researcher that they were done. But what they didn't know is this researcher was always going to be in a long conversation with, and fake conversation with another researcher. And an amazing thing happened. The group that unscrambled the rude words interrupted them at a rate of three times that of those that unscrambled the polite words. What an incredibly powerful thing. Exposure to rude words actually makes people act more rudely. Researchers are confirming what God has said for centuries. Our speech is powerful. Peaceful homes are the result of peaceful speech. Encouraging work environments are the result of encouraging words. Or in the language of Paul here, crude joking leads to crude thoughts. Foolish and dishonest talk leads to foolish and dishonest behavior. Our speech matters. And here, what we, here's what we learned from verses 3 through 4. 
because we've been made holy in Jesus, we are called to be holy in our everyday lives, in every area, in thoughts, words, and in deeds. And this brings us to our second, the second way that we're called to live as followers of Jesus today. We are called to be distinct from the world. <clears throat> Up to this point in Ephesians, Paul has been talking about primarily the believing community, how we interact with each other, how we relate to one another, what our identity is. Here in chapter 5, he shifts his focus to talk about how we relate to the world around us. And he calls us to be distinct from our neighbors. Not necessarily disconnected, though, and that's an important distinction. The phrase he uses in verse 7 is this. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. The word partner in verse 7 means fellow members. This does not mean to become uh, distant or dissociated from everyone around us, but that we should not become partakers and participants or partners in these sinful behaviors that Paul just mentioned. One commentator said it this way, the context here in Ephesians makes clear that what is involved is not a general distancing from all aspects of life in the Gentile world, but in particular, a separation from its immoral aspects. So this is not a full-scale rejection of all culture. It's an awareness of how our culture gives into sex, greed, and harmful speech in the way that is inconsistent with the holiness of God and therefore incompatible with the life of someone who follows Jesus. In every culture, in every age, throughout all time, Christians need to be wise and discerning about what that looks like for them. This is why Paul says this in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We have to think about what that, how this applies to our day. Every culture, every generation will have aspects that are consistent with biblical ethics and will have aspects that are not. We must discern how we respond to our cultural moment which is why I've used the word distinct here. It's different than disconnected or detached. It's also different than partners and participants. Therefore, some, um, or there were some among the Ephesians, though, or uh, among the church in Ephesus, who were trying to deceive others into thinking that these things don't really matter. It's not such a big deal. And Paul confronts them in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There were church members in Ephesus at the time who were saying things like, God loves you. He's gracious to you. Do whatever you want because God's going to forgive you anyway. It's not a big deal. In so doing, they deceive themselves. They deceive their listeners. And this isn't that God's grace is not wide and expansive and never-ending. That's not what we're saying. But it is a lie to say that God has made you holy for all time in Jesus but he doesn't care about making you holy in your everyday life right now. He has made you holy at great cost to himself. He sent Jesus, and through the death of his son, he has made you holy for all time. The necessary result is making you holy in your everyday life. God is deadly serious about making you holy. And our willingness to participate and partner in sexual sin, greedy practices, and deceptive speech reveals that our hearts have not truly turned to Christ because these things are no longer fitting for us. We have died to these former ways of living. And the result is that sometimes we are going to be weird in the world. We won't always seem normal because right-side-up living in God's kingdom will look upside-down to the world. What is natural to the world of light will appear unnatural in a world of darkness. 
And one way that this happens is in our finances. Paul mentions covetousness here, and this is an issue for us as well. As a culture, we have given in to the idol of covetousness, like at an epidemic level together that Paul mentions here. Christians will necessarily be distinct from this in certain ways. And this goes deeper than just kind of the two common rules in evangelical churches. Stay out of debt and give your 10%, and then you're all good. Like, God wants to address more than that and go deeper than that. Paul mentions that covetousness is idolatry because it is a sickness of the heart. This is a heart level. This is a worship issue. At its most basic level, it is believing the lie that I am not okay and that I need that thing in order to be okay. Modern advertising has perfected its ability to manipulate this lie, whether in appeal to fear, an appeal to status, or just not wanting to miss out. In a nation of abundance, how do we get people to feel like they need more? By making them think they're not enough without whatever it is that we're trying to sell them, or that they will not be okay without it. And the sickness of covetousness, it is making 21st century people the most anxious and unhappy generation our nation has ever known. And it's not that we don't have enough. I heard this past week that the average American home, regardless of income, has 300,000 items in it. And the statistics on consumption are more abundant than the items that we buy. So I could go on and on with statistics, but I'm not going to because I want to spend my time convincing you that this is not just a behavior issue. As if wealthy people are the only ones with a greed problem because they have a means to secure what they want. It is a sickness of the heart regardless of income. When we start to believe that we need something to make us okay, when we crave what our friends have because we think that we would be happy if only we had it too, here is what God wants to say to you. You have everything you need in Jesus. You are enough because of him. You are okay in Jesus. Nothing else will ever make you enough. It won't make you okay. It won't give you what you need. Only Jesus can do that. As a nation, we consume more than we ever have. And if stuff could make us happy, we should be the happiest people in the history of the world. But or study after study for decade after decade has proven that that is not true. In fact, we are the least happy we have ever been. And you want to know how to be distinct in this age. Learn the practice of simplicity. Reject the lie that things will make you enough. Live generously toward others. Be mindful of the deceptive thoughts that enter your mind as you scroll through your social media feed. And trust that in Christ, you have all you could ever need. Sometimes being distinct will make you different from the world. And when it comes to greed and material goods, we will look strange sometimes. Because what is natural to the fruit of light will appear unnatural in a world of darkness. And this brings us to our third point. We are called to be light in a world of darkness. We do not disconnect from the world. We live as light in the world. To live as light in the world, there are a few things that we need to know that from this passage. The first is that we need to know our identity and that in Christ, our identity has changed. Through Ephesians, Paul is continuing to remind us of our identity. He spent the first half making it crystal clear for us what this mystery was that's been revealed. And that identity becomes foundational for all the instruction that he gives us in the second half. So 
it, the reality is we forget our identity so often. We forget, which is why we need to keep be remind, being reminded over and over. This is why we say this all the time. It's why we gather as a church, why we sing together, to be reminded and to worship in reminding one another. In verse 8, Paul gives us a reason for this distinct life. He says that we are now light in the Lord. At one time, he says, we were darkness, but now we are light. And notice he doesn't say that we walked in darkness. He says that we were darkness. That is who we were. But now you are light in the Lord. This is an identity statement. Therefore, walk as children of the light. The result then is that we produce fruits of the light. And the fruit of light is seen in verse 9 in what is good and right and true. This is contrasted with the unfruitful works of darkness in verse 11. And here we circle back to the framework that we started with. I started out telling you that in Christ, God has made you holy for all time. That is your identity. And as a result, he wants to make you holy in your everyday life. That is the fruit of our behavior. It's the same framework here. You are no longer darkness, but you are light. That's our identity. Therefore, produce the fruit of light. And we have to get the order right here. Our pursuit of holiness must begin with our identity as holy people, or we will become moralistic and legalistic, and that will become oppressive and wearisome and suffocating. The second thing we need to know is that light exposes darkness. This is both a good thing and a very challenging thing. When you walk as light in the world, it will expose darkness. In verse 11, Paul says not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And this is a fairly simple and self-evident illustration in principle. Light exposes darkness. In darkness, things remain hidden. When light shines on them, they're exposed. The image is as powerful as it is self-evident. Light exposes darkness, both inside and outside the church. Sometimes the darkness that needs to be exposed is right here among us. Other times, the light of the Christian community exposes the darkness of the world around us. And exposing darkness happens in a number of ways. It happens through our example, as our contrasting lives reveal the fruitlessness of darkness. It happens sometimes through discussion and through argument as we confront darkness and convince others with wisdom and with grace of the good fruit that God delivers when we live according to his design. And when we think about this analogy of light, one of the things that makes me think of is the sun. The sun's a great picture for us to consider in this. As the sun rises each day, it pushes away the darkness. It exposes what was previously hidden. It fuels our planet. All the energy we have for life and flourishing comes from the sun. It brings fruit and it brings life wherever it shines. The light of God's holiness is like that. It brings fruit. It brings life. The sun is powerful beyond measure, but it's also dangerous when we're exposed without protection. If you went to the beach this past week without sunscreen, got a little red on the shoulders, maybe burned, you know what I mean, right? It can become actually challenging, or it can become harmful and painful when exposed. Think about what would happen if we were exposed closer to the sun. We're 95 million miles from the sun. If we were at close range, it would destroy us. And this is in some ways what it's like when we're exposed to the light of God's holiness, This is why when the world of darkness is exposed for what it is by the light of God's holiness, it will rebel. It's why what is 
natural to the world of light will seem unnatural to a world of darkness. And exposing darkness will get many different responses. If it is your darkness getting exposed, it will cause shame sometimes. It will cause defensiveness sometimes. If it is you doing the exposing, you might be called a hypocrite or judgmental. But the beauty of light is, is not just that it exposes, but also that it heals. Because we're called to not only expose darkness, but to heal it. And that requires some proximity to people, which is why we have to be in the world, but not of the world. You might hear that phrase, which is why we want to be distinct, but not necessarily differentiated. When you realize the terrible strength of God's holiness, like getting too close to the sun, then you need to know that your darkness can be healed. And so we go to verse 14. We need to know that light heals darkness. The lines here from verse 14 are part of a hymn from the, the early church would sing. I love knowing the early church had a, some version of a hymn book. They were writing songs together that they could sing together. And so often the best songs are based on scripture. And this hymn is based on some passages in Isaiah. And it's meant to be an encouragement to the reader. Paul wants to encourage them after this exhortation. And he says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. We don't need to be consumed by the light. We don't need to be destroyed by the light. We don't need to be ashamed when our darkness is exposed by the light. The beauty of the gospel is that we can be healed by the light. If we go back to our sun analogy, we see why the image of light is so powerful because the light that the sun brings bring, or gives life. It brings healing to us. In the human body, this happens in a very literal way. As ultraviolet B rays come into contact with proteins in the skin and get converted to vitamin D, it includes all kinds of health benefits for us, both physically and mentally. The sun literally heals our bodies. And the light of Christ's love brings healing to us. He awakens our dead hearts. He restores our brokenness. He heals our hearts. Jesus experienced the darkness of the tomb so that we could know the light of God's love together. He makes us holy so that God's holiness is healing and not all-consuming. God has made you holy for all time in Jesus, and he wants to make you holy in your everyday life. And at times you may get discouraged in that. You might find yourself going back to old habits, living upside down in the world again, but through the healing light of Christ's love, you can be whole and holy. Don't give up, dear saints. Trust that God will bring renewal. God wants to wake you from your slumber and bring healing to your life. Together, let's trust that he will. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.